Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I am so happy to be here with Alan Klein today. He's one of my favorite authors, and he has such a positive outlook on life with approaching things with with humor and laughter. And since my whole thing is approaching uh, grief with seeing how you can be happy and grieve at the same time, I thought he'd be the perfect person to talk to. So, Alan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, I'm alive. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) That's a good thing, you know, these days. Well, any day, I guess. Was it George Burns when he was approaching 100? um, Said something like, someone said, glad you're here. And he said, at my age, it's good to be anywhere. (laughs) I I just mixed it up, I think. But, you know, anyhow, I'm an author. I'm a professional speaker. I have a TEDx talk on the power of intention. My first book was The Healing Power of Humor. My latest book is The Awe, A-W-E Factor. And in between there is a book I think we're going to talk about today, Embracing Life After Loss. Oh, I love that. uh, Yeah. (laughs) What else? I just, I guess my main goal in in life is to help people get through not-so-funny stuff. So I either do that with humor or with um, positive approach uh, to life. That's so incredibly important. And I, I think that especially when people are dealing with grief kind of on their own and not talking to other people about it, it's really easy to not do that at all and to not see the, the brighter side of life and see that it's, it's okay to smile and it's okay to breathe. Tell us about your your book that you were mentioning. I I love what you do with it, and I, I like the idea of what to do now. So, can you tell us about that? Which of the thirty books? I mean, the, the one in the middle. The, you, you just I, mentioned the first and the last, and then you said the one I want to the talk one about in the, middle, the one in the middle. Embracing life That's after right. loss. There you Look go. Look at all the. Even I put <laughs> little things that I want to remember in my own book. So my wife died when she was 34. She, we found out she had a rare liver disease at 31, and she did pass away three years later. And there was a lot of um, tears. Uh, daughter was 10 years old when my, daughter, when my wife died. So there were lots of tears, but there was also a lot of laughter. And after she died, you know, I remember Norman Cousins talking about how he healed himself with laughter. And so I start thinking about that. And I start thinking about the laughter that Ellen had to cope. And I start doing research in in humor and death and dying and grieving. And Emily, I could not find anything. It was so amazing. In fact, I found one article that was scheduled to be in the New York Times about humor and death. And it wasn't in there. So I went to the library and tell you how long ago this was. There was no computer. There was microfiche. 
Oh, yeah, remember I remember like that. A, <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of graduate research on that. Yeah, you put a film strip in. So I sat there for a whole day looking for a whole year of New York Times looking for that article because it was the only thing, you know. And wow. You couldn't put it, those words in a computer and get, you know, 100,000 references. So I sat there, day, you know, the whole day looking. I could never find it. So I found out who wrote the article, and I wrote to him. I think he was a professor in a college in Texas. And he said, oh, Al, I'm sorry you did all that work. It was scheduled to be, in, and he told me the day. However, a big news story came up, and they cut it. And he sent me the article. Wow. Um, but <laughs> so, you know, I was really into looking at humor and death, and there was very little about it. And so I just start writing my own experience of my wife and I laughing together, even during her terminal illness. The classic story I tell is uh, how my wife had a copy of Playgirl magazine with the male nude centerfold. And she said, Alan, I like this hunky man this month. Can you put it on the wall by the bed over there? And I said, Ellen, it's a hospital. <laughs> Let us risk for that. She said, well, maybe you're right. She said, why don't you get a leaf from the plant over there and cover up that part? And I did that, Emily, and things are fine for the first day, fine for the second day. But by the third day, the leaves start shriveling up. And we would start to laugh. And I realized looking back after she died, it wasn't a lot of laughter. Maybe it was 10, 20 seconds. But what I realized, it helped us get through that moment. It helped us rise above the situation. It gave us a different perspective. So that's when I went back to school to learn about death and dying. I gave up a business I had actually to do that and became a hospice volunteer and a home health care aide. And I would notice how people would often use humor, and yet nobody was talking about it. And so I started to teach it, to write about it. And what I realized after my wife died was I had a therapist. And the second session, he said, well, Alan, life is tough. And I got walked up. I got up and I walked out of the office because they said to him, I know life is tough. I needed better advice than that. Yeah. You know, come on, I'm paying you <laughs> to tell me life is tough. No. So I got another counselor, a peer group called Shanti, and she had lost her husband. I had lost my wife and we laughed together. We cried together. And then I was reading... Um, Norman Cousins, of how he healed himself with laughter. And so I saw, and as a hospice volunteer, I saw how some of my patients would often laugh. We would laugh together. And yet nobody was talking about it. And so when I looked at books where my wife was dying about grief, Emily, they were big, fat, 300-page books telling me how I'm going to feel crappy, how I'm going to lose my appetite, I'll lose sleep, I might be depressed, you know. And I thought, I'm going through this stuff. You don't have to tell me it. <laughs> and so finally, after years later, I thought, I think what people need is what I would have liked I had, which was a book like Embracing Life After the Loss. It, it's very simple. It has a quote from somebody else. Then it has my thoughts, and it's easy to just pick up, 
read, open it to anywhere. I do have five stages of going from loss to laughter. We can talk about those, but it's so easy to just pick it up. Like here's, I opened to do something new. So this was um, how to get back into your life again. And I have some quotes and my thoughts on how I did it or how I've noticed other people have done that. So that in uh, more than 25 words or less <laughs> is, is the book. I, I, I really love that. And I do want to talk about those five stages because that's, that's something, the five stages they say of grief. I get asked about like every podcast that I go on, somebody's asking me about it. And I always have to explain, you know, it's not five stages of grief. It was written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her book on death and dying is the five stages of dying for, for to help people with their dying process. And I think people, because of what you were mentioning about not having anything available except for those great big thick sad books right. uh, that people were so searching for something to do, they kind of latched onto it and tried to make it into five stages of grief. Right. And right. I've discovered when I look that up, it, you can find anything from three stages to 12 stages <laughs> of right. grief, that there's all kinds of different things. And it's becoming come yeah, up. Yeah, because Kubler-Ross had five stages. I thought I wanted five stages. So we, yeah. we can talk about, actually, I call them steps. I don't call them stages. Oh, I like steps. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. You know, I actually happened to be watching a, a TV show last night where somebody was literally talking a woman off the ledge. And she was saying something about the the stages, the five stages and going through them because she was so depressed because her husband died. And he said, you know, there aren't five stages. That was written for people who were dealing with dying. And I thought, finally, people are paying attention and it's getting all over the place. So. Right, right, right. So tell us your five steps. So mine, just to top Kubler-Ross, mine all begin with an L, the letter L. I like that. So you know, losing, that we have to realize that loss, death is part of life. You know, I ask readers to imagine if everybody lived forever, what would this world be like? We wouldn't have enough food, housing, jobs. It would be total chaos. So although it may be strange, it's like nature's way, I think, of like keeping the universe in balance. Yes. New, new bodies come in, old bodies go out. And, and so just that, uh, that we can't live forever, we're just not built for that, and, and that it keeps everything in balance and that we need to realize that death is part of life. That's right. As Woody Allen has said, death is a fatal disease. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, no, no, birth, I'm sorry, birth is a fatal disease. There you go, yeah. You know, birth is, a, you going to be born and you're going to die. That's, you know, the two most sure things <laughs> uh, from one end to the other. So the first step is losing. At some point, you need to realize loss, you know, loss is an, an important element of living. The next is learning. I think losing someone is one of the greatest teachers for us because, among other things, it could help us be more loving, more compassionate, could help us maybe be motivated that some you realize someday you're going to die too. And if you want to do what you want to do in this world, you got to go do it. So it's you need to learn that. 
So death is like a wake-up call, and, and we learn stuff about it, and we appreciate life more. You know, one thing I realized after my wife died was to just enjoy life more. First thing I did a couple of months after my wife died was take my daughter on a trip to Alaska. Wow. And it was one of the best. It bonded us. It helped heal us. We still talk about the puffins we saw. <laughs> uh, it was on the ferry system and the seaplane ride that we took and the white water rafting trip down wow. one of the icy waters. And it was just amazing. And we needed that adventure. I think death could be a real great learning experience is what I'm saying. There's a play. I don't know if you know it. Our Town by Thornton Wilder. Oh, yes, absolutely. Is the um, main character named Emily, I think, uh -huh. your name? Emily. Yeah. And she dies as a teenager, and she's up in heaven looking down at her mother uh, making dinner. And she, she asks to go down to earth one more day. Just one more day is all she wants. You know, and she's granted that wish. And there she sees her mother cooking. And she you know, I never, I never realized her doing this for all of a, the family and the smells and look at the flower out that window and just, just appreciating life more now that she had died and come back. And I saw the interesting thing. I saw a production of this many years ago off Broadway, and the mother was cooking bacon in the kitchen on stage. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it just like you got this. <laughs> wow. I've seen this play a number of times, but it really hit home that we miss, the, you know, once we, we don't appreciate those not only sights and sounds, but smells. Absolutely. So, I've got to tell you about our town. My husband and I, Jacques, my first husband who died, were very involved in theater. We did lots of different things in theater and had lots of theater friends. And we didn't have like a church or anybody. So when, when Jacques died, we weren't real sure what we were going to do about the service. And one of his friends, an, an actor friend of his, who also happened to be a doctor, but he, he was a great actor and singer and they used to sing together. And he said, can I do the service? And we said, sure, that'd be wonderful. And I was so surprised when he came out on stage because we did it in our theater because we actually owned a, a, a theater. We didn't own it at that point because of Jacques' house, but we created the theater and had done it for years. And so that wow. was where we went for the service. And out onto the stage walks our friend, Michael, playing the part of the stage manager. Oh, wow. And did the whole service from the perspective of our town. Wow. And it was so amazing. He was able to weave everything in, like the people that sang and played instruments and acted, you know, did all these things, because those are the things that, that Jacques would want to see. Right. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. It, it was really powerful. It's a wonderful play if, if your listeners have not read it. Um, or go see it if it plays anywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's like a classic, you know. Yeah. Our Town. I think it was on TV once. Oh, really? I didn't see that. With a famous actor. Paul Newman, I think, was really? the stage manager. Wow. I think so. Now, my memory sometimes gets things mixed up. But it might be on the internet. Um, I'll have to look I don't it up. Know. Yeah. Great play. So the losing is 
number one step. Number two is learning from the experience. Number three is letting go. Now, we really can't move on. I became a hospice volunteer and I had one young woman client and she was in her 30s. She had full life ahead of her. Her mother died. And for two years, she grieved severely. You know, she Mm. stopped working. She couldn't go out of the house. And I thought two lives were lost. The Mm. mother who died and the daughter who cannot get on with her life. So I think we need to start letting go. Yes, and put that in, you know, not, I'm not saying don't forget your loved one who's died. I mean, I still talk and and talk about my wife, Ellen, and with my daughter and people who knew her. And uh, it keeps a memory alive, you know, the, the, uh, our spirit, I guess, is alive. Mm -hmm. Even though our body dies, our spirit lives. So starting to let go. And people say, well, Alan, how can I do that? And I have two things that I recommend. One is to forgive, to forgive the doctor that couldn't keep your whoever died alive. Forgive yourself for not being able to do more or thinking that you could have done more. Forgive your friends who never called you. You know, my wife was 31 and to 34 and many of the friends just pulled away because they were so young and they didn't know what does, what do I say? You know what? And so they don't call, which is not a great thing, but just forgive, forgive all those things that you're holding on to because it's, it's keeping you from moving on with your life. And the other is gratitude. I once had a teacher, one of my gurus who said to want what you don't have is to waste what you do have. Ooh, I like that. Want what you don't have is to waste what you do have. So yes, maybe a loved one, a dear friend has died. They're no longer here. But one, you still have the memory of them. You might even have photos of them or objects from them. So you can keep their spirit alive. And then just one of the things that really helped me when my wife died, I finally came to realizing all the things I had in my life and the gratitude for that. So I start making a list of them. My daughter, my work, my house, my friends, the food in the refrigerator, you know, all these things I still had. And so to honor, honor that and be grateful for what you still have, not, you know, grieving is important, but not overly grieved like the woman for two years that I mentioned. That's right. So that's letting go. So it's, uh, what is it? Losing, learning, letting go, and then finally getting into living again. And one of the greatest things I think that could help us to start living again is to volunteer. After a year, I became a volunteer with San Francisco Hospice, one of the first 12 volunteers. And it was just so nourishing to help other people who are going through the death and dying, whether the patient or the family, just to bring them comfort and be with them was just so helpful to me. I mean, I was giving, but I was also mm-hmm. getting a lot. And it taught me a lot. I, I remember I'd never know when I'd be going to see a patient what it would be like in the household. Or, and so it taught me to like sit in and meditate for 10 minutes in my car before I went in the door and kind of, I would do a smile meditation. So I'd have a little smile on my face when I walked in the door. So just help other people, I think could really, is my number one tool for helping yourself. 
I find that too. I, I love to do that. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a note for the whole year, uh, every day of the year to people that have enriched my life, telling them how Ooh. much they meant. And Emily, I did not, I was just doing this because I wanted to express it. And so what I got back was so amazing. A number of people said, Alan, how did you know I really needed this uplifting note? I was so down this whole week and you made my day, you made my week, you made my month. I never expected that. I never expected people to send me stuff back saying what I meant in their life. So just by reaching out can can lift you up. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. Uh, every day, I, I could just see how that that would make just the process of writing those notes every day for a year right. can't help but right. but lift yeah. you up. Yeah, and it's so easy to with the internet to send people an email. It doesn't, you know, if you want to write it by hand and send it in the mail, that's okay too. But. However you want to do it, it doesn't matter, but just just do it. You know, if you can't do it every day, do it once a week or something. Yeah. When a friend of ours died unexpectedly and I was concerned about his wife, I, I wrote her a note every week for a year. And I felt kind of, I was really felt motivated to do it, but I was a little concerned that I'd run out of things to say, <laughs> writing 52 different notes. So I decided, okay, I'm going to sit down and, and write out what I'm going to say first before I start sending the notes. And it was no problem. The 52 things, the different things, they were about a paragraph each. Each one of them I wrote was different. Each one of them was on something that that could help her in one way or another. And it helped me a lot by writing them. And then using those notes, the, the process of actually writing them for the whole year was, was amazing. Right. So if somebody wanted to do the year, like you said, do something every day, sit down and write down 365 people you're going to send something to and right. then do it. Well, you know, after, as I was getting like 300, a little over 300, I thought, I'm not going to get enough people. You know, I'm running out of people. <laughs> but I never did. In fact, you know, that more and more people I'd look back in my past and, oh, this one, you know, did this influence me or help me in some way and there's another person oh they're related to someone else i should send a note to them and by the end of the year i had more people than i had written to so um <laughs> that's so cool yeah and you, you meet people along the way too so it could be somebody that you didn't know at the beginning of the year you'd be writing to in the middle of the year <laughs> yeah yeah and and you just you just don't know how um you know, it's like the old thing about throwing a pebble or a rock in the in a lake and how the ripples, the ripples. go yeah. out. So you helping them, they might then help somebody else. And you you just don't know. So you gotta do it. And you're helping yourself. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's uh, it's amazing. It's such a it it blows me away sometimes. And I find the more I'm grateful for stuff, the more stuff comes into my life for which I'm grateful. So talking about gratitude, yeah. I agree with that totally. I know gratitude was something that I didn't really think about before I was grieving. And when I started actually practicing, and I haven't stopped since, I, I write what I'm grateful for in my journal every day. And I always, like, like you said, with 365, you always had somebody to write to. I always have more things that I'm grateful about. I never have a problem figuring yeah, out what to yeah. be grateful for. yeah. So, yeah, so anyone who's listening that is grieving, you know, yes, it's difficult, 
But try to find one thing a day, at least, that you're grateful for, because that's the more positive. You know, the grieving is not so great, but the being grateful helps lift you up and is you're more focused, helps you start focusing on the positive things. Yes. So guess what? We're up to laughing, laughter, yes. laughing, drum Yay. roll. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, you know, we think that it's like inappropriate to laugh when somebody is dying, or, you know, but tears and laughter are very close. And there was a study in a book. Let me make sure I get this right. It's called The Other Side of Sadness. Mm. And George Bonanno wrote it. And I think Dashu Keltner helped him with this research. And uh, what they found was that they, it was a two-year study. And they studied people who are grieving. And they found that those that had some humor laughter at the beginning of their grief or during the first year did so much better than those that did not. So we think it's inappropriate to laugh, you know, while we're grieving, you know, like it's disrespectful for the person who died, but it's the other way around. It's very helpful and will help people who are bereft um, be healthier and stay healthier. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing, when I was writing my book, I did a survey or when I was a hospice volunteer, I would, I would ask people, how would you think the person, the loved one that has died, how do you think they would want you to live your life? And nearly everyone, almost everyone said, oh, I, I think they would want me to enjoy life again, to be happy. Yes, maybe to grieve once in a while, but not, not forever, not for a long time and just really enjoy their life. And yet a lot of people don't. But um, So that's a little more laughter, a little more smiling, a little more chuckling could be very helpful in the grief process. Absolutely. I I know both my mom and my sister, after their husbands died, they didn't laugh very much for the rest of their lives. They did. Occasionally something would come up and I, I did see them laugh under certain mm. circumstances, but generally they didn't. And to me, that was just a, a lesson in, in observing them to say, that's not the way to live. Happiness is essential to, to be right. able to thrive. Yeah, and for, yeah, to be healthier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I was doing my keynote speeches, I'd often have people come up and say things like, oh, my son uh, was killed two years ago, and I haven't laughed since. Thank you, Alan, for coming and sharing some humor with me. This really helped me. I, you know, So I think instinctively people know that it's a good feeling after you've laughed. Yes. And yet during grief, it's hard for some people to acknowledge that and, and do it. That's, that's right. I know my my aunt and uncle were in a car accident where he was killed and she was almost killed. And when I went to to visit her, she had a copy of the movie Patch Adams. And I said, oh, that's cool. You watch that? She goes, I watch it all the time because I laugh. I can't help but laugh when I do it. And right now, laughing is what I need to do. Yeah. She said, so, yeah, so feel people, your fans that are listening to this, find something that tickles your funny bone and, and go, whether it's the um, Patch Adams movie, a cartoon, a sitcom on TV, whatever it is, and, and 
help that nourish you. That's right. That's so important. Wow. I just love to talk to you. I could talk to you all day long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have a lunch date in uh, about an hour. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we, have, we have another hour. <laughs> Well, I think we it would be good to wrap it up because I keep hearing that you shouldn't have podcasts longer than a half an hour or so because people don't listen to them for that long. And I really want people yeah. to listen to you. The The message that you have is, is so beautiful and so necessary in our lives. And so many people don't realize the, the importance of it. Mm-hmm. So right. I'm encouraging people to listen to it and share it with all your friends because this is this is a message that needs to get out there. Right. And it's all everything I talked about today is in the book, Embracing Life After Loss. Beautiful book. This one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Alan, for being with us today. Thank you, Emily. I can't believe how fast <laughs> I know. It seems like we were talking for 10 minutes. It, it really <laughs> does. Less, yeah. <laughs> That's because it was happy talk. Oh, yeah. Happy makes the world go faster, I think. <laughs> I think so. So thank you, Emily, and good luck in your book. Oh, thank you. It's doing very well. And Great. It's, it's very positive. All that I'm working on is, is on uh, grief and happiness with a focus on happiness and the importance of that. So I'm I'm really, really grateful to be doing that. Great. Great. Well, bless you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I love Thank it. you. Thank you for being here. Bye. Bye. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.